In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I've been experiencing something of a liturgical hangover this week. There was something particularly intoxicating about last Sunday's gospel reading that I haven't been able to shake. It was the part about James and John asking Jesus to sit at his right and left hand. In his sermon, Jim Leonard paraphrased Jesus' response to them beautifully. You are asking to participate in my glory, but you don't realize that glory and suffering come in the same swallow. Is that really what you want? Jesus is pushing them to reevaluate themselves. I think I might have responded slightly differently. I would have said something like, just who do you think you are? And I would have said it before they even got to their request. Just remember how they broached the subject. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Oh, really? Is that all? Well, by all means, ask away. Needless to say, it's a good thing Jesus isn't me. But my question remains, who do you think you are? If you strip away the anger and impatience with which I might have posed it to James and John and ask it honestly, it's actually a profound question. Who do I think that I am? What is my self-image? And then the next question, is it true? Over the last couple of months, the other Stephen ministers and I have been working our way through C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. In the final chapter, Lewis takes on this question of image, the version of ourselves, of God, and of our neighbors that we hold in our minds. He observes that there is a perpetual danger with these images because we have the tendency to substitute them for the reality they are supposed to represent. And so, they have to be shattered from time to time. God, Lewis quips, is the great iconoclast. I want to suggest that there's a fair bit of this divine iconoclasm going on in our gospel text from this morning. Let's stay with the disciples for starters. If the request of James and John from last week is any indication, there's a self-image among the disciples that is warped by an unhealthy dose of self-importance. Whatever their takeaway from Jesus' response, things don't seem to have improved much by the time they depart from Jericho in this week's reading. We are told that there is a blind beggar sitting by the roadside. When he hears that Jesus is passing by, he begins to shout loudly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The response of those following Jesus is to try and shut him up. Now, the text doesn't identify these people explicitly. It just says that there were many rebuking the man. There is a large crowd following Jesus along with the 12 disciples, so those ordering the man to be silent may or may not include James, John, or any of the other 10. But I think St. Mark is making the point that this throng of people associating themselves with Jesus the 12 disciples included, hasn't really been listening to him. 
They're missing what he's telling them. They certainly haven't internalized the teaching that concluded Jesus' response to James and John's impertinent question. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. How does anyone who has followed Jesus for any length of time think that the appropriate response to a blind beggar asking Jesus for mercy is to shut him up? Healing people like him is what Jesus does. Having compassion on the outcast, the suffering, the needy, is what Jesus models every day. How do you come away thinking that you could try to turn any such person away? So Jesus shatters their self-image. He doesn't rebuke them or launch into a lecture. He simply stops and tells them to call the man to him. Jesus doesn't have to tell you you're wrong to shatter your false sense of self. If you are truly following him, all your false images will eventually be broken down by what he asks you to do. Here too, the text doesn't specify exactly who he's speaking to, but I think we are meant to feel the squirm in all who considered themselves followers of Jesus that day. The very people telling this man to shut up must now go and tell him a very different message. Take heart, uh, get up, he's calling you. It is as if Jesus is telling his followers, you said you wanted to be great in my kingdom and already fancy yourself so. Good, now go and serve that man whom you value so little. That's the measure of greatness in my kingdom. Let's turn our attention now to the blind beggar himself. What can we say of his self-image? First, there's his name, Bartimaeus. For those of us two millennia and quarter of a globe removed from these events, there's nothing terribly striking here. But to the ears of St. Mark's contemporaries, this name signals something to pay attention to, especially if you speak Aramaic. Bar Timaeus means son of Timaeus. And just in case that was lost on any of his readers, St. Mark spells it out in the text. It's almost as if he's peeking out from behind the fourth wall and telling us, Psst, hey, guys, his name was Bartimaeus. You know, the son of Timaeus, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Why is Mark going out of his way to draw attention to this man's name? One more piece of information lost on us now, but obvious then. Timaeus means honor. Now we see something of who this man is and the bitter irony of his situation. The blind beggar crying for mercy at the side of the road was the son of honor. Was. Names tend to stick around, but circumstances change. There is nothing honorable about his condition now. The picture of who this man is comes into even sharper focus when he asks Jesus to be healed. He says, let me see again. He hasn't always been blind. Mark is giving us the profile of a man who has fallen from a great height. There was a time when he had not only his vision, but probably also a life of great prestige and privilege, a name to be proud of and the life to prove it. But here he is now 
kicked to the curb, blind and begging his bread. We don't know what happened, but we are meant to see that this is a man who hasn't always been down on his luck, a fact that only compounds the misery and shame of his present condition. It's safe to assume Bartimaeus has experienced his fair share of self-image smashing in his time. What about now? What does he believe about himself now? Our Old Testament reading and Psalm provide some possibilities. Both texts feature blindness as a theme, which is probably why the lectioners chose them to accompany today's gospel. In Isaiah, we heard, we wait for light, and lo, there is darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, groping like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight. And in Psalm 13, we read, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, that I sleep not in death. But the speakers voiced their lament from opposite ends. In Isaiah, the people know that they have brought this suffering upon themselves. Their own sins are the cause of their present condition. The psalmist, on the other hand, cries out to the Lord for vindication. His enemies threaten to overwhelm him, and God seems to be stonewalling him. How long must he endure this injustice? We can imagine Bartimaeus praying either of these scriptures back to God. Did he blame his condition on himself, his own failures and mistakes? Or did he resent others, even God perhaps, for unjustly subjecting him to ruin? Was his self-image that of the miserable sinner or of the afflicted victim? We don't know. And maybe it doesn't finally matter. St. Mark is less interested in how Bartimaeus views himself now than in what he does. The more important lesson to learn is not so much the self-image he had to break through, but the true image of Christ that he pursued with every fiber of his being. What do Bartimaeus's actions tell us about who he believes Jesus to be? First, there's the name by which he calls Jesus, son of David. Mark gives us a beautiful parallel here, the son of honor appealing to the son of David. But the significance is more than literary. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that anyone has called Jesus son of David. Up to this point, he has gone by the more cryptic title, son of man. Son of David is a clear identification with the long-awaited Messiah that would, have, that would have been lost on no one present. Right out and saying it, Jesus, you're the savior we've been waiting for. Please, save me. And of course, he's right. The crowd will come to join him in this opinion as they celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the very next chapter. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, they will say. The next thing we notice is what Bartimaeus does when he is told that Jesus is calling him. He throws off his cloak. Why does St. Mark include this detail? Why is it important to tell us that he threw off his cloak? Consider what his cloak might have meant to him. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out that it is seldom cold enough in, Jer in Jericho during the day to need cloak for warmth. So the cloak would have been there spread out on the ground, 
to receive the money any passers-by tossed his way. This cloak is his livelihood. It's all he has to support himself. Maybe it was also a reminder of who he used to be. Tattered and grimy now, it might have once been a fine, rich robe. It might have been all he had left of the life of privilege he once knew. In any case, his casting it aside underscores the big bet he's making on Jesus. What if it doesn't pan out? Would he be able to find his way back to where he left the cloak? Would there still be any money in it? Would he find it at all? He isn't hesitating with any of these doubts. He springs up and goes to Jesus. Whoever this Messiah is, I am giving up all I have, all I've been clinging to of who I was, to throw myself at his mercy. Finally, there's the request Bartimaeus makes. How many times do you think he's cried out for mercy from passers-by on the road? And what has he ever expected of any of them but some spare change? But when the son of David responds to his cry for mercy, he asks for what no one else can give. He asks for everything. Let me see again. Everything Bartimaeus does points to who he believes Jesus is. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one whose call neutralizes the claim of everything else. Everything I have, everything I have been. He is the only one whose help will save me. This is the image of Christ Bartimaeus holds and pursues. And Jesus validates it. Go, he says, your faith has made you well. There's a little lost in translation here. A more literal rendering of the Greek would be your faith has saved you. Physical healing is only part of the story. The subtle distinctions that make us think of salvation as a purely spiritual phenomenon haven't been made yet. This is the Jesus who forgives sins and heals bodies in the same breath. His salvation is for the whole person. Bartimaeus sees Jesus to be this kind of savior and has placed his total trust in him. And he is saved, body and soul. St. Mark is making powerful use of irony to draw a striking contrast here. Where those following Jesus are clearly unable to see who Jesus really is and what he's about, the blind man who has only just met him sees exactly who he is. To drive the point home, Mark has Jesus ask Bartimaeus the same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Where his disciples asked for greatness, Bartimaeus asks for help. The former are blinded by a distorted self-image, where the latter, whose self-image has already been destroyed by his tragic circumstances, sees clearly the reality of who Jesus is, and he goes all in. Even after he has regained his sight and Jesus dismisses him, he does not go his own way. He follows Jesus. And so we see Lewis's great iconoclast at work. He patiently breaks down the false images with which we blind ourselves. And then, when we are sitting 
bewildered among the broken pieces. He calls to us. He opens our eyes to the reality we couldn't see before, the reality into which he is now calling us to follow him. It is never fun to have your image of reality shattered. It is disorienting, terrifying. Everything you took for granted, everything you thought was true, no longer holds together. It's all fragmented in a million pieces, and you don't know how to put it all together again, or even if you should. It seems to me that we as a community at All Souls have experienced our own season of image smashing over the last year and a half plus. Much of who we thought we were has been called into question. Certainly for us as a parish, but also on the diocesan and provincial level. We know something of what it is to sit bewildered among the shattered pieces of a former identity. But if our gospel is teaching us anything this morning. It is that this is not a hopeless place to be. It is precisely here where our illusions and delusions have been broken that we might begin to see clearly again. We have begun putting the pieces of our identity back together. We are prayerfully and honestly asking who we really are, who God is calling us to be. An overwhelming majority of us have completed the parish sur survey put out by the Rector's Search Committee. We have an opportunity on Thursday to hear an update on that process. We have begun to hear someone say, take heart, get up, he is calling you, and we are responding. As we go to Jesus, let us ask him to let us see, to let us see who we really are who he is calling us to be. And then let us follow him on the way, wherever he leads. Trusting him for the rector, he is also now calling to us, and trusting him with the future he is calling us into. Amen.